Lord, we do praise you today and do desire to worship you. And uh, we need help. We need uh, enablement to even worship you. The focus of our minds to be able to focus on you and to see you. So we pray for illumination as we open your word and attempt to understand it and particularly you. So we commit our time asking that you would have your way amongst us. And we agree with those requests that we have made and do desire in your sovereign hand that you would, in fact, work sovereignly as was prayed. We commit our time today that you would have your sovereign hand over us, not only this hour, but this day, this week, the rest of our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome to this national holiday. <laughs> Today is the absolutely best day for skiing. It is. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Super Bowl Sunday. Nobody else Nobody skis. Furthermore, this day is a palindromic day. You know, palindromes are where you can read something this way, and you can read the like auto, O-T-T-O, and you read it O-T-T-O. This is, and I, I read it, I haven't figured out what, look to see if it's right or not, but O twenty twenty is palindromic, yeah. and it's the first time oh. in 900 years we have had a palindromic fit. Wow. O2. even better than the Super Bowl. <laughs> I love palindromes. My favorite is. Okay, so with that introduction. <laughs> it's a funeral. We live That's a perfect segue, right? <laughs> Into the book of Romans. <laughs> and we're going to continue looking at the security of sanctification. This is the last portion of it. I don't think I'll get through all the verses, however, but we'll get through some of them. So, in the book of Romans, written to real people, real locations, real lives, real struggles, similar to what we struggle today. That's why it's inspired and applicable to us today. In this context, we are closing into the end here of sanctification. The emphasis of chapter 8 is the power to live the Christian life or the power for sanctification. We've divided it up into a few parts, 1 through 11, power over sinful flesh, 12 through 17, sonship of sanctification, part of a family. We are sons within a divine family. And a major tool God uses in sanctifying us is suffering, even though this is not kind of on the surface and overt, I guess, is the word I'm looking for. Yet it underlies the whole passage. In fact, uh, even the passage we're going to look at today is in this context of suffering and sanctification. So it goes even beyond verse 30, but particularly beginning verse 18 through 30, suffering and sanctification. And rather than giving us details, do's and don'ts in suffering, he gives us a perspective. In other words, what do we focus on in the midst of it? to uh, help us get through the pain, and it gives us some eternal things to focus in on. In fact, big picture ideas. And the emphasis of 31 to 39 is the security of sanctification. Can you lose it? And I've been mentioning that there were any place in the book of Romans where 
the possibility that you might lose God's blessing, God's salvation, or not be complete in his sanctification, this would be the place, the conclusion of chapter 8. But instead we have the very opposite. We have great security. In fact, I can't think of a probably a more clear passage on the doctrine of security than verses 31 through 39. And Paul does it using a series of questions, 31 through 35, seven questions, and interspersed. Some of the questions are framed such that they are also the answers. They're rhetorical in that he's not asking us to give him an answer, but he's asking us to think through the question, and in our thinking, we know what the answer is in every one of the questions that he asks. So we have the first set questions on anyone can oppose us in terms of sanctification. Not that we will not be opposed, but what he's getting at, opposed to the point that it'll trip us up such that we lose something on the way. And the emphatic answer, 31 and 32, is absolutely no one, because God is for us. And if the creator of the universe is for us, who could be against us? Who could oppose us? Then he asks other questions that are more legally related. Could anyone bring a charge in a courtroom? Can anyone bring an accusation? Well, he's not saying people can't bring an accusation or even Satan, who is the accuser. But what he's saying, will that accusation stand up in a court? And he gives an answer to that one. No, because... The ultimate judge is the one that acquitted us. So the final decision of that ultimate judge is that we have been declared righteous, a right standing. So that's 33 and 34. And we'll, we can summarize the question. Yes, a general question. What shall we say about these things? Essentially, all that he's talked about already. Question number two, God is for us, so nothing can oppose us. Ultimately, and with any effect, question number three, God gave us the greatest, so he's going to give us the least as well. He's not going to be hindered in giving us everything else as well. So it's an argument and a question from the greater to the lesser. Verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? We spent most of our time last time. And by the way, um, there was a problem with the recording. And I had to re-record most of it last time, so I actually added, if you're interested in a little bit more detail on concept of election, uh, we spend two hours on it. In fact, sometime maybe we might, since we've been discussing it. So I added a little bit that we didn't cover in class. If you're interested, you can go back. Oh, Linda heard it. I've heard it all. She's heard it all. In fact, Linda is more caught up in this class than anyone else. Wow, what is the shame? Yeah, she's even more caught up than I am. I think so. Who will bring a charge against God's elect, God's choice, or God's chosen one? The implied answer, no one, obviously, because God is the one who is justified, as I said. So if you think in terms of an analogy, the final legal decisions are decided at this, our Supreme Court. Now, the Supreme Court can re-litigate and review 
and overturn itself, but that's the final decision in our court system. And what Paul is arguing, the final decision of the ultimate judge, which is greater than the Supreme Court, greater than any court, is that we have been justified. So justification, he's talked about in chapter 3, verse 21, all the way to the end of chapter 5, and now he just reminds us. So question number four, the answer, every sin is justified by the ultimate judge. So who can bring a charge? No one. And then that leads into the next one. Who is the one who condemns? This is about where we left off last time. Who is the one that condemns still this courtroom setting? If they can't even bring a charge, then it doesn't even make sense that anyone can condemn because we're justified. So he's just kind of expanding his answer here by asking a question. And then he's going to even expand it with the rest of the part of the verse, Christ Jesus. And now he gives us a list. We ended last time looking at this list of things Christ has accomplished. And there's not a strict parallel here, but I kind of put it together, at least using the same imagery of that chain that we looked at when we were talking about verses 29 and 30. So Christ, here's the answer. Christ is he who died. So the ultimate judge, notice he uses the Trinity here, or at least the two persons of the Trinity. God is the one that justifies. He's the ultimate judge. And Jesus Christ is the one in the courtroom. In fact, we know he's our advocate. He's our defense attorney now. Based on what he did, and we have a list of four things, Christ Jesus is he who died, so no one can condemn us. The payment was made. In other words, everything required for us to be declared righteous was satisfied. That's called propitiation. So Jesus was the sacrifice. He's the one who died. And God confirmed that he accepted this propitiation by raising him from the dead. In fact, there's passages that indicate that even Jesus himself rose from the dead on his own. No one takes his life from him, and uh, he can bring him his life back. So, yes, rather, who was raised? So I use this little analogy, Christ's work. Remember When we were talking about 29 and 30, that was God's plan or God's part in terms of our destiny, you might say, including salvation, sanctification, total package. And I'm using the same analogy, not even though it's not strictly in the text here. Christ's death and Christ's resurrection, what he did in the past that satisfies all the legal requirements that we not be condemned Then the next part, who is at the right hand? In other words, that's present tense. The Father, at the right hand of the Father, Jesus Christ seated at the right hand. There's lots of verses. We emphasize this in the book of Hebrews. There's probably more references in the book of Hebrews than any other particular book. Who is at the right hand? And he's just not sitting there twiddling his thumbs, right? He's busy, who also intercedes for us. In fact, if you study these passages relating to Christ seated at the right hand, you're going to see that there's lots of ministry that he's administering. We call that his session. 
which includes, in this case, intercession. So not only do we have the Holy Spirit praying or interceding, but Christ Jesus also intercedes for us. He's our advocate. He's praying for our security, for our complete sanctification. So we can add to the chain here. We call that his session, seated at the right hand, ministering in many ways. And one of the ministries is intercession. So four parts, similar to the four parts that we saw in 28-29. So question number five is answered, similar to question number four, because it was related. Question number four, every sin is justified. We have been forgiven of sins past, sins present, sins future. So no one can condemn us. Question number five, every sin is covered by the work of Christ. Nothing is left out. It's a complete work by the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's the emphasis of verse 34. So that leads to verse 35. That's where we left off last time, or we left off at 34. A question concerning separation. Mary Lee? Question concerning the word, every sin is justified. Acquitted. Every sin is acquitted. Okay. Acquitted. It's covered. Paid it's covered, paid for. Okay. This justified, you always think of, well, I'm justifying why it was right. And sin is not always right. We have sin. It's covered. So it's, it's okay. Yeah, that's what I mean. Justification is the declaring of righteousness. Every sin is covered in that justifying work. Maybe it's not the best choice of words there. It's a little confusing there. So let's take a look at verse 35 where we have another question. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? So no one can oppose us. No one can accuse us in court. And now, can anything separate us? And he's going to give us two categories. He's going to give us a category that deals with persons. Can any person, both human, angelic, are there any others? And then he's also going to give circumstances, kind of two categories here. Can anything, now he begins at who, making it personal, who will separate us from the love of Christ? And then he goes and gives us a long list. But question number six, the bottom line, no one can separate us from Christ's love. No person, no personage, human or angelic, will persecution, now here's circumstances, will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness. In other words, he's kind of just brainstorming here, giving us a list of possible things that might separate us. Now, all of these, in our mind, when we're in the midst of tribulation, for example, we get clouded. When we're suffering, we get clouded. Remember I mentioned that this is still, in the background, the theme of suffering, Our minds sometimes get clouded, and in our thinking, and we might even be tempted and fall away in terms of sin, not that we lose salvation, but we might, in our experience, sense maybe a separation or God being distant, but in the midst of all of this, the point that he's making is none of that really separates us in any real sense other than in our thinking and in our Sense, I guess you might say. So tribulation can't do it. 
And he's going to, he's writing, keep in mind, he's writing the book of Romans when persecution already began in Rome. It would become more and more intense during the reign of Nero. And during that reign, Paul would be beheaded. At least that's the tradition. He was martyred. In fact, at the end of the book of Acts, he's in jail waiting the decision. Now, on that occasion, it's not the occasion when he dies. It's later on where we have evidence that Second uh, Timothy chapter 4, where he's awaiting imminent death, essentially. So he experienced, in fact, he experienced all of these things. In fact, we'll look up another passage here. Well, tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness. And in fact, Paul experienced all of that. So he speaks from experience and I'll look at a passage that indicates that. So when you're in the midst, if you're persecution, and by the way, the word tribulation there, under pressure, that's kind of the general idea here. Under severe, usually spiritual pressure that may involve physical suffering. In fact, it may involve the following. I think what we have is a general term here. And by the way, this is the word that is used of the great tribulation, the seven-year period of time that is the most severe time of trouble for believers in all of world history. Most believers during the tribulation will not even survive that tribulation period. Most of them will be martyred. So, kind of a general word for persecution, tribulation, and other pressures, you might say. Distress, to be hemmed in. In fact, both these words are real general. To be boxed in, where you have no options, where you can't move, you can't change anything. You're backed into a corner, nowhere to go. That's kind of the idea. And I think the rest of the list here are just kind of specifics of these two more general terms. If you do word studies on them, you'll see they're used in a variety of uh, contexts. Persecution specifically. In other words, opposition for your faith or suffering because you named the name of Christ. So it's persecution for Christ's sake in most of the context, the word that is used there. And a specific aspect of even persecution, but tribulation and distress is famine or overall poverty. You don't have enough to even put a meal on a table. Similarly, nakedness, destitution, same idea. Uh, even though I've got some clothes, uh, you might consider me destitute. <laughs> this is my only Nike uh, apparel. I'm going to use that as an illustration later. So I wear this. This is the closest I have to Nike. And even this, I'm destitute. Louis and Junko supply me with most of the clothes that I wear. So. <laughs> and Manny. Yeah, my yeah, yeah. When they notice my destitution, exactly. Peril, another specific physical hazards, physical hazards, and the sword. And the sword in this context was the sword that often was used in martyrdom when people were beheaded and or simply uh, stabbed to death. So, will any of these separate? Will any of these? Maybe only in our thinking and our sense of God seems distant. Why am I going through this? When is this going to end? 
But in reality, the answer, the implied answer here is none of these things. None of these things can separate us. Not only ultimately, but it's possible even in the midst of the worst persecution. In fact, we're going to see another verse in a moment. In the midst of that persecution where God can be the closest to us. Closest to us. Somebody look up 2 Corinthians 11, 23 through 38. This is Paul. Now he's defending in 2 Corinthians in several places. He's defending his apostleship. And that's what he's doing here. He's not bragging. He's just kind of explaining the, the extent to which he has paid a price in his apostleship. And notice what he says here, and you can imagine Paul going through all of these experiences and more. Who's got it? Okay, read it. Second, Second Corinthians 11, 23 through 28. In fact, read the whole paragraph, but let's just read that part. But whatever anyone else dares, speaking. Now, when he says boast, it's not prideful boast, but it's kind of, uh, I am defending myself. In other words, I'm explaining my experience to validate my apostleship. Go ahead. Sorry about that. Uh, see, I'm speaking as a fool. I also hear the most. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one than that. Far greater labors. Labors. Mm-hmm. That's what this one said. Far more imprisonments. Imprisonments. Persecution. Countless beatings. Persecution, tribulation. Often near death. Martyrdom, almost. Yes. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews at 40 lashes less. More distress, peril. Three times I was beaten with rods. More peril. Once I was stoned. Similar. And three times I was shipwrecked. At night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent day journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, Danger from my own people. Lots of perils. Danger from Gentiles. Danger in the city, danger in the wilderness. Several occasions. Danger at sea and danger from falls. Wow. In toil and hardship, through many sleep, a sleepless night, hunger and thirst. There you go. Famine. Often without food and cold and exposure. Nakedness. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on you. My anxiety, all the churches. The pressures, a form of tribulation. So Paul experienced all of that. He's speaking from experience. His experience, that did not separate him from Christ. He continued his ministry and, in fact, probably drew him closer. Bill. Now, our emotions don't tell us what is true. But the cool thing is our emotions try to understand our Right. And recognize and believe a lie. Exactly. And go to scripture. Very good. Yeah. And in fact, our emotions lie to us a lot. Uh-huh. They lie to us. So we have to have the biblical perspective. So question number seven. No circumstance. Verse six. No one can separate us from Christ's love. That's the answer to question six. And then question seven with the answer given with a list here. No circumstance can separate us from the love of Christ. Okay? We had questions in the first 35 verses, or not 35 verses, 31 through 35, and then 36 through 39. We have expansion on the answers. 
so that's the extent of the questions, and now he's going to continue answering these, even though, in a way, he's already partially answered all those questions just in the way that he's framed it. So beginning in verse 36, he gives a consideration from the Old Testament. How were the believers in the Old Testament considered? What were they considered like? And first he starts off, just as it is written. What is that a reference to? Old Testament. That was the Bible in uh, first century. Book of Romans was right now just being delivered. Paul has just sent it off. So generally there were very few New Testament books. So he's referring to the Old Testament. For your sake, and he's quoting out of Psalm 44. And by the way, somebody turned to Psalm 44. I want you to read a couple of verses beforehand. Yeah, I want you to read verses 20 and 21. But first of all, for the quote, for your sakes, we are being put to death all day. This is the idea of I'm dying moment by moment all day long. I'm going through death over and over and over. You've heard the expression, I'm dying of a hundred, what, what is the hundred uh, paper, paper, paper cuts? Yeah, a thousand paper cuts. The idea is I'm dying continually, and not paper cuts, but actual <coughs> swords, inch by inch, okay? So a continual death experience, and it's just not over in 24 hours, it's more continuous. He's using imagery here. So we could use imagery as well, Psalm 44:22. but before we do that, read, who's got it? You got it, Maddie? I do. Read 44, um, verse 20 and 21. These are the verses preceding. Yeah, that's what I wanted to good. Really good. I always like to do so, what you want to do. Context. So if we had forgotten the name of God, extended our hands, would not God, for he knows, but for your sake, we are killed all day. We are considered as yeah. going to arouse yourself. Why do you sleep awake? Do not reject. Why do you forget our This is actually a lament psalm. The psalmist is giving a record of his suffering, but I had uh, verse 20 and 21 read because it's not for sin. It's not because of his own stupidity or sin. It's persecution. It's as a result. And the point that he's making here, this dying over and over, is this is the experience. This is nothing new. This is what Old Testament saints experienced. So we, not only first century believers, but we in the 21st century, any suffering we experience, people have experienced worse in the past. So from the first century perspective, Old Testament saints went through the same thing. The last part of the verse, we were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. That's why I use the imagery here of a lamb being slaughtered for sacrifice. This was a common scene. As gross as it is, common scene in the lives of the Israelites throughout their their history, as long as the temple was there, or the tabernacle, blood spread, animal in agony and pain until its last breath, offered on an altar, sacrifice. That's the imagery. That's what we are like. We're like sheep being slaughtered, and we're suffering for Christ's sake. 
So we have this dying over and over, just as sacrifices were offered over and over, and animal sacrifice over and over. So also that's our expected experience as believers. And we're like a sacrifice. We're like a sacrificed lamb at the hands of God. God is the one that puts us through this experience. See the suffering motif continuing even... Verses 31 through 39. And let's read Hebrews 11, because this is the experience of saints in the Old Testament. Who wants to read that one? Hebrews 11. We studied this passage when we were in the book of Hebrews. When was this? Last century? You got it, David? 11, read 36 through 38. He is talking about the faith of Old Testament saints. Remember he identified specific ones, Abraham, Noah, Several in there, and now he's kind of general. Read 36 to 38. Now there's a trial of cruel mockings and scourging. Yes, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, and tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. This is the typical. This is what the Old Testament saints experience. And there's lots of examples in the Old Testament. Here's a good little summary of several experiences. And you can even tie these with specific examples in the Old Testament. Besides the several that he talked about specifically by name uh, before verse 36. Connie. He was going to be a sanded God by Somalia and talked to her Russia. It was really questioning him on how do you have faith. And one gentleman from Russia took him over the window and said, you see that? Yeah, he wasn't sure what he was looking at. As sure as the sun rises, he will. That is just about it. Yeah. And um, so it's not, I just want to say that to say, you keep talking about old times. It happens to Yes, you. yeah. That's the expected. In fact, what is it? What is it? First Timothy or Second Timothy. Um, Those that desire to live godly will suffer. Will suffer. That's the normal. That's the typical. America is the exception. We're probably the only culture that has never, as believers, have never really experienced the persecution. Yeah. And that might change, by the way. We don't want to claim that promise. This is word called. Yes. Exactly. All right. So. That's the consideration of the Old Testament. We're considered as sheep taken to slaughter. That's the attitude of the believers in the Old Testament of expectation of suffering. And then, yes, right. So part of the, um, an application I'm not going to do, uh, in our daily life of dying, um, and God uses those circumstances also about that death to self. Yep. But the new life will be fully, um, fully engaged self. No, that's good. In fact, that's the first and probably underlying application that Paul draws after he completes the doctrinal section of the Book of Romans. Remember? Right. 12.1, what yeah. does it say there? I urge you, brethren... Therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, what? A living and holy sacrifice, which involves giving up our lives. Very good. So, verse 37, we are conquerors. 
So the conquerors are described. Victory in the midst of suffering. But in all these things, what's he talking about? What's the context? Persecution, distress, famine, nakedness, sore, all, all that he's already listed, suffering in general. In all these things we overwhelmingly conquer. And notice, it's in these things. It's not away from these things. In other words, oh, I escape. Now I'm victorious. I escape the suffering. It's in the midst of the suffering that we can be victorious. Remember, he's talking about sanctification in this context. I can be set apart and God can use this to make me more holy. So it's in these things, not away from these things. And he says, we overwhelmingly conquer. One word in the Greek text. One word. So let's break it down. Pupernikao. Combination. Now you have to be careful when you have combinations of words. They don't always break down. And you have one part adding to the next part. Just like in English, when you have a two words put together, it doesn't necessarily mean something related. The example I like to use is pineapple. One word. Does it come from a pine tree that it tastes like an apple? No, it has nothing to do with either one of them. But yet you have pineapple. Well, in Greek, sometimes you have that as well. But on some places, like probably this one, the combination probably gives you an idea of when you put the two together. So let's break it down. Who pair? Generally, it's translated for. It's a preposition. But sometimes it can be translated over, depending on the context. Who pair? Very, very common preposition in the text. And nikao, nikao, to be a victor, to be victorious. It's a verb. This is where Nike gets their name. Nikao, it's a Greek word. Got it? That's why I use the imagery there. Don't stare at the imagery. Read the, the words here. So, nikao, be a victor. So, you put the two together to overconquer. So, it's not just conquering, but it's triumphal conquering. The way you might translate it is a hyper-conqueror. That's why it's translated overwhelming conquer. Bill? In respect to English things, we overwhelmingly conquer. It it's, seems a lot like the victory Jesus obtained at the cross where I had a co-worker ask me about the imagery in C.S. Lewis of a line in which in the word or, Well, Aslam dies there. How is that? How is that a victory? But it totally is. It totally yes. takes what Satan and turns it on. And makes it the great victory. Exactly. Absolutely. So in this sense, it's a way we can be like Yes. And we can overwhelmingly conquer, and oftentimes in the proportion to the suffering. The greater the suffering, the greater is the conquest. Just like the illustration you use with Jesus himself. Ultimate death. Okay? So that's why it's translated we, and the we is in the verb there. So we overwhelmingly conquer, to overconquer, to hyperconquer, and it's in the present tense. 
adding to the point I'm making here. It's not only in these things, in other words, as you experience these things, but it's in the present tense, we can be overwhelming conquerors. That's the idea. This is ongoing. So you may face a problem today, and you can overwhelming conquer today, and you may experience something different tomorrow, and you can be a conqueror then. So this is ongoing. So it's not just something that you experience once or in the past. He puts it in the present tense because this is a continuous ongoing experience. And as long as we are in these sinful bodies, frail bodies, we need to appropriate this overwhelming, conquering idea. So, present tense, ongoing, but here's the key. It's not by just gutting it out and saying, oh, I'm just going to determine and I'm going to just make myself an overwhelming conqueror. You always have through him who loved us. That's the key. That's the whole topic of chapter 6, union with Christ, baptized into Christ, united with him in that relationship with him. And it's through him. It's not conquering on our own. He is the overwhelming conqueror. And it's allowing him to live through us that we can experience victory. I was just wondering why love is in past why it's in the past tense, who loved us. I think because it ties back to what he did for us. That's the supreme example of demonstration of love. He went through the greater than anything that we would experience. He already did it on our behalf. Crucifixion. The means is through not only the intercessor. He's at the right hand interceding. But it's someone, in other words, he's not this detached defense lawyer that you only see in court and you pay big bucks for. He has no concern for you other than the big bucks he's going to earn for you. He's not just a defense attorney and our, like our world, but he is an intercessor who is looking after our best interests and in fact has a real tie to us. So it's not only an intercessor, but one who loves us. And no one, so here's the answer, can anyone separate us from the love of Christ? No, he loved us in the past tense. And in his session, he continues to love us. So we can also Maddie? go back to the chapter where Paul talked about um, we have this experience. Yes. So we are, we are adopted to God's family, so we are sibling of Christ. Yes. Right? And so that relationship, too, um, he's invested. Yes, he's invested, exactly. So, right, like having a family member who is the best versus paying to do it. Right. Family member that intercedes and is our defense attorney. Very good. Very good. Okay. Tremendous verse. Verse 37. So we are described in that verse. Believers are described. And verses 38 and 39, this conquest is comprehensive. A comprehensive conquest. You might notice I've got C's there. Consideration of the Old Testament, verse 36. Conquers described, verse 37. Comprehensive conquest, 38 and 39. And Let's just introduce it, and then we'll expand it next time. First of all, for I am convinced, 
The word here, I don't have the Greek word there, but the idea is Paul is definitely convinced, persuaded. In other words, he's not going to be swayed away from this. And I think we've already said he is speaking from experience. So he's saying, I've experienced it. I know it. I am convinced. And I know it in terms of you as well as Roman believers. And since this letter has inspired those of you that are here in Albuquerque as well. So he stands convinced, and it's in the perfect tense. Perfect tense is a past tense. In other words, he's been convinced, but it has ongoing effects or ramifications. That's the idea of the perfect tense in the Greek language. So Paul is not going to be dissuaded in the future either. Nothing is going to change his mind because this is certain. This is based on what God says. In fact, this is God's word. Then he goes through another list that neither death nor life, present experience, we'll go over these in more detail, nor angels, nor principalities, angelic creatures, probably another order of angels, probably good angels, bad angels, perhaps. It's not totally clear. So celestial beings, so nothing beyond this world, beyond present experience, things present, nor things to come, uh, nor powers all by itself. I don't know if he's talking about secular powers, because he's already talked about celestial powers. It's not clear. Maybe Satan himself, maybe calling attention to him, nor height, nor depth, height, nor depth, spatially. No matter, no matter where in the universe, nor any other created thing. Here's the death knell to the Arminian. You cannot yourself. Are you created? Are you a created thing? So nothing you can do as well. And then the big nothing else comprehensive will be able to separate us from the love of God. And again, it is which is in Christ Jesus. All right. And let's conclude with this. Sanctification is absolutely secure. Therefore, if sanctification is absolutely secure, then what about your salvation? Can't lose it either. Who wants to close for us? Bill. I think you're a good word. And please hear us. Amen.